<clears throat> our topic, transgendered. Transgendered. What does the Bible say? And we have multiple texts, and I'll get to those in a minute. <clears throat> Very popular movement in our day. Currently in the United States, the United States federal government, many large corporations, Hollywood, the entertainment industry, as well as the mainstream media has been advocating a new philosophy regarding sexuality called the transgendered movement or the transgendered rights movement. The basic idea is that what one really is regarding one's gender or sex is not determined by one's physical gender or sex at birth. For example, one is born either a male or a female, male chromosomes, hormones, biology, sex organs, etc., or female, female uh, genetics, hormones, physiology, sex organs, etc. But rather, one's true sex or gender is something that one thinks or determines autonomously in his or her own mind. Okay, you could be some masculine man, but if you think you're a woman, then according to this new philosophy, you are a woman. We hear things like, I'm one woman trapped in a man's body. Or I've always identified as a man, even though I was born with a female body. This thinking, uh, by the way, is not based on any scientific data or studies or empirical studies or facts or careful studies or empirical observation. It is a cultural movement that has become very popular and trendy and is now backed by left-wing politicians, the media, and a kind of cultural coercion. You know, if you don't accept this view, if you don't speak in favor of it, if you point out what is obvious, uh, then you become condemned and you are ordered to be silenced. If one does not adopt this new ethic of sexuality, this new arbitrary method of de defining what is a man or a woman, then one is labeled as a bigot, full of hatred, evil, unloving, uncompassionate, and so on and so on and so on. This is our situation. Now, given the fact that this new unscientific concept of sexuality is being taught to young children uh, in public schools and in libraries, and of course now it's all over the place, uh, advertisements now, you see frequent advertisements uh, featuring transgendered homosexuals and lesbians, as well as the fact that uh, Bible-believing Christians will be denigrated and persecuted for not accepting or submitting to this new concept of sexual ethics, we would do well to examine what the inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect word of God the Bible has to say about this new philosophy. Okay, this is purely a study of what the Bible has to say. Now, we do have a section on logic and common sense and science toward the end. But this is, a, you know, this is the biblical view. What does the Bible say? What, is, what does Scripture teach? If you want political stuff, there's tons of good political stuff on there uh, on the Internet. Does biblical Christianity endorse or condemn this new sexual ethic? And there are a number of theological and exegetical reasons as to why the Bible strongly and unequivocally condemns the transgendered philosophy. Number one, the doctrine of creation. <coughs> the Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, creation ex nihilo. The world did not come into being by chance or in a purely arbitrary manner, but was created by an infinite personal God, Yahweh, the triune God of Scripture. This means that the universe is finite and has a meaning and purpose given to it by God. 
God created it, God controls it, God defines it. We live in a God created and a God created reality. And everything has a certain order, purpose, and meaning that cannot be denied without denying that reality. Because God is infinite and all-powerful, the transcendent imposes order, meaning, purpose on the imminent. There is a creator-creature distinction. We can only know truth or ethics by learning these things from God. No one can arbitrarily deny meaning or truth, but such denials are rebellious, foolish, and futile. For example, you can deny gravity, you can deny certain realities, you can, but you, when you go rock climbing and you deny gravity, you go splat, you die. You may think that you can walk through walls, and then you try to do that and you smash your face. There is a certain created reality. Such objective arbitrary perversions of creativity will lead to an early death, as one goes splat on the rocks below. Reality is what it is because God created it that way. We do not live in a meaningless chance universe. Now, the theory of macroevolution, where everything supposedly came into being by matter, uh, there was matter plus time plus chance, leads to social anarchy for it is a in a universe of pure chance or contingency. Ethics are purely arbitrary, subjective, and evolving. They're situational. The concept of ethical absolutes, or unchanging, non-negotiable ethical norms, is totally dependent on ethics coming from a transcendent source that is personal and unchanging. So if you deny creation, if you deny the creator-creature distinction, if you deny that there's an infinite personal God, uh, ethics is purely my opinion versus your opinion, and everything boils down to who has the power, who has the coercion. The moral law coming to man from the triune God of Scripture, summarized in the Ten Commandments, is foundational to Western civilization. If we evolve from pond scum, it does not matter whether you believe you are a man or a woman or a dolphin or a chicken. It doesn't matter. In the long run, everything turns to dust. There is no meaning. It'll be as though you never even lived. Life has no meaning and you will die. It will be as though you never even existed. So it's... Uh, it's all just, you know, like a television show or something for children. It's meaningless. Now, the issue of what defines a man and a woman, as well as proper sexuality, is resolved very clearly in the creation account of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, 26-28, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we learn from other sections of Scripture that God created man with true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24, with an innate desire for godly dominion. Man was created to serve God, to glorify God. The path of godly dominion was to be achieved through heterosexual, monogamous marriage between one man, one woman. <clears throat> and what is a man? and what is a woman, was permanently defined and fixed at the creation by God. 
There are two sexes. There's not 30 sexes. There's not 10 sexes. There's not six sexes. There's two. If man is to respect the truth, acknowledge reality, and honor God, he must have a respect for God's law order. Because we did not create ourselves and our existence is not a cosmic accident, we are under God's authority in the same way that a soldier is under the authority of his commander. In fact, in a, even in a superior way, God can't make mistakes. A commander can make mistakes, and soldiers uh, should disobey his commander if he makes a super serious mistake or tells him to do something unethical. God can't do that, so it's a superior authority. God defines reality and makes the rules for that reality. In addition, because man was created by God in his own image, he is by nature a religious being, either serving God through Jesus Christ or rebelling against God through self-law, which is lawlessness. Now, if we consider the expanded account of the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, 18-25, there are a number of things to learn about sexuality, gender, marriage, and purpose from creation. Number one, as we noted, God created two sexes, or genders, male and female. Anything purporting to go beyond those two sexes, those two genders, that God created is a perversion. It is not only a denial of reality, it is also a form of rebellion against God. It says God created only two fixed sexes, male and female, but I do not agree with God. I am not satisfied with, with what God created with what God did is created reality, so I will seek to invent my own subjective reality, a delusion, a perverted fantasy. I will pretend something is real, authentic, and normal, when it is something I made up to fill my perverted, delusional, sinful fantasies. I will reject what God has done and seek to be my own God, determining for myself what is right or wrong, good or evil, true or false. Such thinking, reasoning, and living is satanic to the very core. For it is a rejecting the will of, the lo of, a, of a loving, righteous, and holy God and replacing it with a sinful, perverted, selfish, dishonest, deluded will of man. And that's why this is such a serious matter. When a society says, oh yeah, homosexuality, yeah, that's fine. Adultery, yeah, we don't care. Uh, you want to you pretend you're a man or a woman and cut off your things and do this and that. Oh, we're, that's not only, we don't only make that legal, but we're going to proclaim it to be virtuous and good because you're fulfilling your own desires. And that's uh, a very sad thing. The goal of a man committed to his unlawful lusts and his sin is autonomy. And of course, self-justification. Autonomy, self-justification. Therefore, he rejects, <laughs> he rejects creational reality and natural laws in order to be his own ultimate subjective authority, his own God. He not only commits himself to defining what is good or evil based on a purely subjective personal criteria, but his intellectual process itself degenerates into a self-justification for his or her own perverted sexual lusts. That's what we're talking about, self-justification for a perversion. The radically hedonistic, narcissistic philosophy which says, if it feels good and gives me pleasure, it must be right. And by the way, such thinking is used to justify fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and all sorts of perverted things. Sadomasochism, 
sexual sadism, etc., has evolved into the idea that if it feels good, gives me pleasure, and makes me happy, it must be real and good. That is moral, ethical, virtuous. Now, they apply this very inconsistently. They don't apply it to molesting children yet. They don't apply it to bestiality yet. They don't apply it to sexual sadism and torture yet. Uh, but where they draw the line is purely arbitrary because it's all subjective. Consequently, the sodomite, right, sodomite rights groups and the transgendered seek to force their hedonistic, subjective, evil, perverted concept of human sexuality on society through political and economic coercion, self-justification, propaganda, and coercion go hand in hand. And we're seeing this very, it's very clear. The committed sexual pervert seeks to make all of mold and make all of society and culture conform to his perverted behavior because he has declared himself to be as God. How dare you deny my ethic? How dare you deny my concept of reality? Even though it's purely subjective, even though it's not supported by facts, even though it's not supported by science, even though it's not supported by any empirical data whatsoever. It's purely a subjective feeling. But if you don't agree with me, we're going to destroy you. Rush Dooney writes, R.J. Rush Dooney. Self-righteousness is an assertion that righteousness is self-derived and that it is man's own accomplishment in terms of his own standards. This means that self-righteousness involves a prior claim to, one's own arbit to be one's own arbiter over right and wrong. The temptation of Satan, Genesis 3.5, was thus the essence of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is thus at war with God's righteousness and is an indictment of God's law order in favor of man's own do-it-yourself law. It will seek to degrade man by pr proving to man that God's law is not possible or attainable and that it, it is in reality a frustration and a limitation of man and that man must recognize that total egoism is the true and healthy way of life. And that's from Salvation and Godly, Rule 1983. So the transgender movement where people openly deny created reality is the ultimate in sinful autonomy and self-righteous egoism. Egoism. This is what I am. You have to accept it or we will destroy you. They're like the little child who throws a tantrum because he believes he is a pink unicorn when his parents tell him that he is a child and he needs to come to dinner. And unfortunately in our society currently, many believe that if you believe you are a pink uniform, uh, unicorn, then you really are a pink unicorn. I mean, it's pure subjectivism. It's not scientific. It's not supported by any objective empirical data whatsoever. None. And of course we know that it's not scientific or empirical because, for example, homosexuality was less than 1% prior to World War II. And uh, every generation, a, a poll just, I think it was Gallup or somebody just came out with this poll, every generation it's been doubling to where now it's up to almost 20%. So it's clearly a learned behavior and it's something that is spread by what is popular in the culture. It's trendy. It's popular. <clears throat> Number two, 
The reason that God created male and female was for heterosexual monogamous marriage, one man, one woman, godly dominion, and the bearing of children to continue the progress of godly dominion into the future. So God created man and woman with a distinct meaning and purpose. Man is to be the leader and act like a man. He is to be manly, masculine. They are to take dominion through lawful work, invention, technology, scientific progress, and so on. Women are created as helpmeets for their husbands. That's the literal word in the, in the Hebrew, a helpmeet, a helper meet for the man, the husband. Husbands and wives, although equal, have different roles, responsibilities, and bodies. Men are much stronger. Women are much softer and shapelier. Obviously, only women can get pregnant and bear children. Women are better at nurturing children. And children, when hurt, naturally come to their mothers. If you've ever been to a large picnic where there's a ton of young children, and being involved in church picnics, we see this kind of thing. And uh, when you see a young child get hurt, whether it's a boy or a girl, where do they go? Well, 99% of the time, they run right to their mothers. Mothers are softer. Mothers are more nurturing. Men are physically stronger and are naturally more leadership-oriented. Both possess a limited sovereignty over nature under God and his law. Both have separate and distinct created biologies and purposes under God, and both exist to honor God by faithfully carrying out their God-given responsibilities. Both are to exercise dominion, and both are equally important, but they have different responsibilities. Men cannot breastfeed. Contrary to what we're told today, uh, men can't breastfeed, men can't have children, men can't bear children. Men do not have menstrual cycles. That's a fact. And the fact that they can't admit that just shows how insane things have gotten. <clears throat> they have different responsibilities that correspond to their God-given natures. To deny this is to deny reality and work to subvert the true meaning of life and family. Now, as we think about the creation account and how it teaches that men and women are different and have been given different roles by God, it is important to note that Jesus himself took the creation account literally, accepted it as fact, and used it to teach on marriage and divorce. For example, Matthew 5, 31-32, Matthew 19, 4-9. He believed in a literal creation account. Jesus did. And Jesus, of course, was God, and Jesus can't make mistakes and never made mistakes, and the word of God is inspired and fallible. In addition, the inspired apostles based their teaching on marriage and the family, on the permanent norms established at creation, as well uh, as well as God's law. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 16, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, etc. They go back to cre the creation account. They go back to creational reality. Why were they created? What was their purpose? This observation is necessary because modernists and feminists have argued that a woman's subsistive role under her husband was a result of the fall or a byproduct of social evolution. It is not. It is not. It is a part of God's created order, God's created reality. It is a creation ordinance. The Bible's teaching on the unique and special roles of men and women is purely a result of God's creative act, not evolution or later, later cultural conditioning, 
Now, one of the problems we have today, <clears throat> when speaking about God's creational ideal, is that in the post-fall world, things, <clears throat> in a, uh, things that were very good and useful have been perverted and distorted in such a way uh, that the ignorant associate the gross distortion with God's original created purpose. In Islamic cultures, for example, in certain machismo cultures, wives are treated as little better than cattle. And thus, submission of the wife to her husband is associated with slavery, and it's regarded as very negative and so on. But such practices have nothing to do with the Bible. Biblical leadership and masculinity is loving, benevolent, kind, firm but gentle, and is done in a manner to protect, nurture, and sanctify wives so they can fulfill their purpose under God. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. Such love is not oppressive unless one hates God and his perfect moral law. <clears throat> so don't confuse what the Bible teaches with Islam or uh, certain machismo Latin cultures that have completely perverted scripture. A Christian wife with a godly husband has it made. She gets to raise children in a protected environment and fulfill her God-given purpose, and such a woman will be the most satisfied woman there is, not the career woman. To modern ears, this may sound sexist, but it is not. To deny creational reality and human nature through secular humanistic feminism is also unbiblical and was the philosophical first step toward the absurdity of the transgendered movement. Okay, when we talk about the transgendered movement, we're talking about a progression of what secular humanism has brought our society, one logical step to another. It keeps getting more and more ridiculous as they become more epistemologically self-aware over time and they become more epistemologically consistent over time. Feminism. Then the homosexual revolution. Then the transgendered revolution. And who knows what's going to be next. If you told somebody in 1960 that homosexuals would be get, getting married and it would be legal and it would be honored by the federal government and the state governments, uh, people would have said you're insane because it was universally considered a disgusting behavior. A sinful behavior, which the Bible says that it is. <clears throat> Both men and women are made in God's image. Man in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is a collective noun. But the woman is the glory of the man, her husband. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, a man ought not to cover his head, in, and he's talking about public worship, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, in this passage, glory refers to the honor that one person brings to another. Man was made to glorify God. The woman or wife was also made to glorify God, to honor God, but she has another purpose, to honor the man, her own husband. The cloth head covering, it obviously is not hair. You know, the idea that if you have short hair, make your hair shorter. <laughs> if your hair's not long enough, make your hair even shorter is ridiculous. The cloth head covering symbolizes and shows forth this purpose even to the angels who observe public worship. Now, once our culture accepted pagan feminist ideas that women and men 
should all act like men, seek careers outside of the home, greatly limit childbearing, and reject submission of wives of their own husbands, then it was only a matter of time for women to pretend that they are really men and vice versa. The transgendered movement is simply the logical and cultural culmination of a society set adrift from the Word of God. The biblical concept of male and female as well as the family goes back to the creation and its purpose. This creational reality is reflected in God's law, his moral law, which is specifically designed to support the heterosexual nuclear family. There's a bunch of family laws in the Bible, and they're all designed to protect the family as designed by God, God's purpose for the family. As society has rejected creation and has adopted the idea that we evolved from pond scum, we have lost ethical absolutes and the concept of a fixed, unchanging reference point. Marriage and human sexuality is no longer viewed in terms of dominion, glorifying God, sacrifice, and rearing godly children, but as something individualistic that is based on romantic feelings. The goal has shifted from the glory of God to the exaltation and glory of man. The biblical concept of godly succession has been replaced with hedonism and finding self-fulfillment through human autonomy and pleasures. Okay. That's why people aren't having large families anymore. That's why people aren't even reproducing themselves in Western nations, because they live for self. And raising children takes a lot of effort, and it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and if you're living for self, why bother? This view leads to ethical <clears throat> anarchy, fornication, adultery, high divorce rates, homosexual perversion, and even the transgender movement. Self-fulfillment now involves self-definition, and society proclaims sinful perversions to be virtuous. But what does God say? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3. Sin is a transgression of the law, God's law, God's moral law. The abandonment of its created purpose in God's moral law brings only misery and a curse. We must be aware that the philosophical foundations of the transgendered movement are radically pagan, secular, and humanistic. The presupposition of modern humanistic culture is that the nuclear heterosexual family is negative, old-fashioned, and even oppressive. And this goes at least as far back as Frederick Engels and Karl Marx and the uh, Communist Manifesto, I forget what year that is, 1848, uh, I'm guessing, it could be earlier. And uh, the first edition of that, Engels had a thing saying that we're going to destroy the family and completely eliminate the family. Uh, that'll be picked up, by, of course, by the state. And Marx had the wisdom to uh, leave that out, although it is still anti-family. <clears throat> so it's... Uh, the presupposition of modern humanistic culture is that the nuclear heterosexual family is negative, old-fashioned, and even oppressive. Freedom is regarded as independence from the Bible, the Christian family, and biblical law with respect to sex. Freedom, fulfillment, happiness, and the good life is associated with sexual experimentation and indulging in sexual perversions and fantasies. This is called fulfillment today. And, of course, it's slavery. But a movement that rejects reality and cannot even define itself is standing on quicksand. 
Because the transgender movement is based upon modern evolutionary humanism, change, no matter how absurd and self-destructive, is viewed as the summum bonum, that is the ultimate good, of society. All those who stand in their way, they believe, need to be silenced and destroyed. But, according to Bible, the Genesis account, all things are either named or defined by God because they are his creation or else they are meaningless brute facts. If you reject the doctrine of creation by God, an infinite personal God, and you believe in macroevolutionary theory that the universe is just a big giant accident, chance, atoms randomly floating in the void, uh, then you can be a dog, you can be a dolphin, you can pretend to be whatever you want, it doesn't really matter. The authority of the husband and father disintegrates apart from biblical faith. As the erosive logic of humanism works to its logical end, it destroys all authority and meaning and leaves every man his own God in an empty world and a meaningless void. So that's God's creational reality. That's our first point. Don't deny reality. Accept reality. If you're a man, be manly. Dress like a man. Act like a man. Lift some weights. Be, be manly. Be masculine. Now, the authority of God's moral law is our second major point. The fall of man into sin necessitated the way of a godly dominion becoming salvific through Jesus Christ. The true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness lost because of sin can only be definitively restored through regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, of course, who was sent by the resurrected Christ to achieve a perfect salvation through the efficacy of his sacrificial death and resurrection. Christ died. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And, Acts chapter 2, he sent the Holy Spirit into his church. If you believe in Christ, if you've been regenerated, that is born again, it's because of the Holy Spirit was sent into your heart by Jesus Christ. The fall also necessitated the special revelation of God's moral law as a guide to righteous, holy, blessed living. Before the fall, Adam spoke to God directly and Adam's heart was righteous and pure. But after the fall and the noetic effect of sin, that is the effect of the fall on man's knowledge, it's been corrupted, man can only be properly guided by the Bible or special revelation. Keep in mind also that unregenerate fallen men have an axe to grind against the true God and his holy and righteous requirements. Thus they rebel against Yahweh and seek to act as their own God, deciding for themselves what is right and what is wrong. <coughs> the Humanist Manifesto 2, number 2, 1973, says this. Quote, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics are autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics stem from human need and interest. We strive for the good life here and now. End of quote. Now, according to this view, ethics are not fixed or absolute but are merely arbitrary, subjective, social conventions. 
well, I think this might be good for man. I think this might be good for me. This serves my interests. That's all subjective. And it's changing. They admit it's changing. They admit it's evolving. It's merely arbitrary, subjective social convention. The problem with this view is that Frequently in history, societies based on the concept of human need and interest have approved of things that are obviously grossly immoral. Chattel slavery, practiced widespread throughout the whole world, and due to the effect of Christianity, was abandoned in Europe and America and other places. Oppressive colonialism, abortion on demand, which is murder, it's outright murder, infanticide, persecuting and murdering Jews, wars of aggression, murdering capitalists in kulaks, cutting off and mutilating breasts and sex organs. This is all done based on the definition of the humanist manifesto. Because it's seen as a human need that serves man's interest. It's all subjective. In modern secular societies, human needs have been confused with perverted lusts. Moreover, the concept of living the good life here and now is confused with a self-centered, narcissistic, hedonistic, wicked lifestyle. How can these atheists define what is good when they argue that ethics are autonomous and situational? Such a view leads directly to ethical anarchy over time, for they can be a thousand different competing concepts of what is good. Obviously, we need something that is transcendent, that is outside of man, that is above man that does not change, that is absolute, if we're going to have real ethics. Otherwise, it's all, it's, it degenerates into purely personal opinion that's constantly changing. To the average homosexual, sodomy with hundreds of sex partners is regarded as good. It's ethical. It's wonderful. But God says such behavior is an abomination. In addition, we need to keep in mind that while the humanist declares ethics to be autonomous, situational, and thus changing or evolving over time, they seek to persecute the Christian position of ethical absolutes coming from an infinite personal God out of existence. So they, on the one hand, they believe in macroevolution and they believe we're, philosophically that we're in an open system. Man is this evolved being. He's the crown of evolution and he gets to make up the rules and he gets to decide at any given point what he thinks is good for man. Yet on the other hand, Christians, because they believe in absolutes, must be destroyed. So they don't really believe in an open system. They believe in coercion by power of the state. And every single one of these movements has been uh, coercive. Uh, and, uh, I mean, uh, tyrannical. Uh, the, the, the French uh, leftist, Proudhon, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, rejected Karl Marx after a while and said, these, these men are a bunch of, I'm paraphrasing obviously, these men are a bunch of fools. They, act, they think they're all gods who want to completely just dominate other people. And that's absolutely true. While rejecting ethical absolutes, they adopt an absolutist perspective and seek to force their views on all society through political coercion and propaganda. So you can't have ethical absolutes. It's up to man to decide for himself what is good and evil. Uh, it's up to serve self-interest and self-needs. Uh, but we're going to tell you what to do, and you shut up and you better obey us or we're going to put you in jail. So that's the situation we're in. And, of course, anybody who has studied the Christian family objectively, of course, people can't because of sinful natures, but uh, what's happier and better 
than Christian families where the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and the wife is submissive and loving and they have good solid children uh, who don't take drugs and who don't commit crimes and are solid Christians. What's wrong? You know, that's somehow that's bad. But that's secular humanism for you. They're seeking of the seeking of autonomy and ethics is especially corrupted sexual ethics after the 1960s. And this is, by the way, is when the welfare state got out of hand and statism really started to grow. It's interesting, if you look at the speeches of uh, Kennedy and in early speeches of LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, they said that welfare programs were solely to get people off of welfare so we can reduce the welfare roles. And then when that didn't work and uh, poverty started to grow rapidly because of these programs, then welfare became, well, we want to just help people lift them out of poverty. They changed the definition. You understand that modernist liberals, uh, secular humanists, they don't ever fail. They just re redefine things and change their definition of success. Things which are universally regarded as immoral, such as premarital sex, fornication, homosexuality, sodomy, fisting, gerbil asphyxiation, adultery, cross-dressing, or the transgendered position, in the past have become perfectly acceptable, and now a number of such behaviors are regarded as virtuous. That is, behaviors that should make men proud. They should make people proud. You know, if you're into gerbils and fisting and all that, you should be proud. You should have a parade. I'm proud because I, I go to a bathhouse and I have sex with 100 different men. I'm so proud of my... It's not a culture. They're proud over a perverted behavior, and we our society goes along with that. Gay Pride Month. Pride, what are they proud of? They have perverted sex. That's what they're proud of. And then our society goes along with that. God will judge our nation. He already is. Consequently, the revelation of God's moral law is necessary to make what God regards as sinful uh, and brings real guilt explicit before mankind. Sin is exposed as exceedingly sinful, truly rebellious, thoroughly evil. Sin is the transgression of the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. The moral law defines sin and is a guide to personal sanctification and a nation's civil laws, a Christian nation's civil laws. In the area of marriage, the family, and human sexuality, it is designed to uphold and protect the creational realities and purposes originally ordained by God. So yeah, God gave us the law. We needed the law because of sin. The law points us to Jesus Christ. It points us to our need. It tells us we can't earn our way to heaven. We can never obey the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. We need Christ. Now we find such a law in Deuteronomy 22 verse 5, which speaks directly to the transgender issue. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord. And that word, Whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters, that means Yahweh, your God. This law is comprehensive in scope. A man must not wear anything that pertains to a woman. A woman's shoes, a woman's dress, makeup, a woman's jewelry, um, long feminine hair, bras, girdles, anything that pertains to a woman, a man's not allowed to wear. That's what the Bible says. A woman is not to dress like a man or even wear military gear. The sexes, male and female, must not... Interchange garments or other articles of attire. Period. The Bible says that. 
Now, this law is based on the Genesis account and assumes that the distinction between the two sexes, male and female, is a natural, permanent, God-ordained fixed reality. Okay, the law supports the creation narrative. Anything that mixes the distinction or waters it down or outright denies it, as does the transgendered movement, is a violation of God's moral law. Now, some modernists or liberal scholars say that this law is speaking only of pagan rituals associated with various fertility gods, such as Isis or uh, Venus or Ashtoreth, where men and women would ritualistically put on the opposite sex's clothes as a form of idolatrous worship. And they also practice bestiality and all kinds of crazy things. And there was also ritual prostitution. Although the, this commandment would certainly apply to such heathen rituals, there's nothing in the text that limits the application to heathen rituals, and such rituals are not even mentioned in the text. It's a standing command. It's a straightforward command. Now, obviously, if you're in, it's World War II, and you've got to smuggle a soldier out of a city, uh, and you want to dress him up like a woman to smuggle him out of a city, that's one thing. That would be an emergency situation. But it's talking about in regular life. You're never to dress like a woman and look like a woman. And same with a man. Some pagan rituals involve bestiality, but modernists do not argue that bestiality outside of the pagan culture is moral and per permissible. Clearly, the, the, the point of the passage is to keep the God-created and God-ordained differences between the two sexes emphasized by differences in apparel. Men are to be masculine. They are to appear masculine. Women are to be feminine. They are to appear as feminine. There, God wants us to emphasize the differences between men and women because that's his created order. Paul says that men, that even nature teaches that there is, is and by implication should be, a difference between men and women's hair. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Men should not have long feminine hair. To deny one's created reality by dressing or appearing as the opposite sex is indecent and scandalous behavior. God calls such behavior an abomination. The word abomination, to'eba, means it is something disgusting, something that is abhorrent, detestable, loathsome. It is something that is highly offensive, revolting, and detestable to God. And you'll see that word used for things that God finds extremely disgusting. It's used, the same words used with homosexual behavior and bestiality. Now, historically, the case of men dressing as women was usually connected to homosexual perversions and prostitution. Men would appear as effeminate in order to appeal to sodomites. Transvestites as performers has been part of American sodomite culture for several decades. these bars where, where they have the transvestites, that was part of the homosexual culture going back generations. The allowance and spread of this gross perversion is a cause any sign of cultural decline and the deny, decay of nations. Because our nation has abandoned the authority of the Bible for atheistic naturalism, it no longer discourages sexual immorality. <clears throat> In fact, as a humanistic act of rebellion, it regards sexual perversion as part of their holiest rites. You see, they're shaking their fist at God 
when you accept homosexuality and you you accept the transgender movement, you're shaking your fist at God and you're saying, God, I hate your guts and I hate your law. Go screw yourself, God. We're going to do what we want to do. We're going to be our own God. We're going to follow Satan. And that's what's going on. Men pretend to be women and women pretend to be men in order to insult the true and living God and mock his perfect holy law. The acceptance of this abomination by the civil government, apostate liberal churches, corporations, and so-called progressives is a sign of impending judgment by God on our culture. It was one of the causes of the destruction of the Canaanites. You know who I fear a lot more than Russia? I fear our own internal decay as a nation morally. It's becoming explicitly anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-Bible. And you know what God does to cultures who do that? Now, the fact that we have a lot of solid Christians in our nation, ironically, is protecting the pagans around them because God doesn't want to destroy his people. But if things get real bad, God can protect his people through judgment and bring judgment. But it's pretty scary. With God's perfect moral, unchanging, absolute moral law in mind, together with Yahweh's creational reality and ordinances, we can conclude that the transgendered movement is not only unbiblical and anti-Christian, but it is something thoroughly detested by God. God absolutely hates it. If a nation publicly and legally tolerates and even encourages such radically immoral anti-Christian behavior, <clears throat> and allows that behavior to prosper and flourish, eventually God's patience will run out and he will pour his wrath and indignation down on that society. Such evil behavior must be condemned by our nation's civil laws and driven deep into the closet where it was for almost the last 2,000 years. In pagan Rome, there was a lot of weird stuff going on. and Of course, prostitution was totally widespread and legal. In big cities, there were houses of prostitution all over the place. And there were signs leading to them, especially in Greek cities as well. It was totally accepted. Men, men, were, men without God, men without Christ are pigs. That's true. But Christianity was the great remedy for that. And then we come to logic, and I'm not saying that Christians throughout history have been consistent. Many, many Christian men do terrible things. David committed adultery. David committed murder. Uh, but... Uh, the fact that Christians make mistakes and Christians commit sins and do stupid things does not negate the truth of the Bible and the fact that the Bible is absolutely true and we have to obey what it says. Now let's look at our next point. And I've labeled this uh, logic, common sense, and empirical science. I'm not talking about science in a purely theoretical realm, which is like macroevolution. I'm talking about things that you can actually study and learn by seeing something over and over or repeated experiments. <clears throat> the transgender movement not only contradicts God's created order, the natural law, and biblical ethics, special revelation, but also defies logic, common sense, and true empirical science. <clears throat> are there physiological factors that show that some people are really male within a woman's body or vice versa? Here are things that we can point to physiologically to explain this. Are there hidden vaginas or hidden male members that reveal something that need to be discovered? And the answer is no. 
People who claim to be transgendered are perfectly normal physiologically. Are there hormonal problems that cause men to think they are a woman? And vice versa. And the answer is no. The hormonal functions are perfectly normal. And if people attempt to become the opposite sex, they must medically, that is through artificial taking hormones, change their hormones, and they must engage in radical, mutilating, highly destructive and unnatural surgeries. So it's not natural, and it's not supported by science. It's not a hormonal problem. It's not a physiological problem. It's all in the mind. It's all a fantasy. It's all a delusion. It's not supported by, you know, there, there could be somebody born, uh, let's say a woman's born and she doesn't have enough of the proper female hormones and, and, and so she's not developing breasts good enough. Well, they can give her hormones and, and they can solve that problem. But it doesn't mean she's a man. She doesn't have a penis. There's no physiological, medical, empirical, or scientific reasons why a man should attempt to be a woman and vice versa. Well, this raises the question. Then why is this movement popular and growing? It's incredibly popular. I see ads on YouTube. I like to watch, you know, Matt Walsh and people like that, conservative political guys on YouTube, Fox News and so forth. And I see, com I see commercials with transgendered and homos in them all the time. It's, it's totally popular. If you did that 20, 20 years ago, your company would go out of business. Why is it accepted and promoted by the civil government, public schools, universities, the mainstream media, and Hollywood so vigorously? Well, there is only one simple and honest answer to this question. Some men think that they are women, and some women think that they are men. It is purely an ob subjective opinion. Something is regarded as true or factual based solely on the fact that some people say so. They have a feeling. And we are supposed to accept something as real, true, or factual because of subjective feelings or impressions, even though it contradicts reality, it contradicts empirical science, and it contradicts simple logic. The way of determining ethics and sexuality is now subjective, arbitrary, and dangerous. For we have social pressure, coercion, <clears throat> the spreading of obvious lies, and the mutilation of young people, causing permanent damage to the body based on an immoral, irrational delusion. It's crazy when you think about it. It's just, it's insane when you think about it. It's being totally actively promoted in the public schools, public libraries. The federal government's actively promoting it. They're celebrating it. And uh, it's just somebody has a feeling. If this purely subjective, anti-biblical, anti-natural, anti-scientific manner of arriving at social ethics was widely adopted by our society, would it not lead to all sorts of immoral, insane concepts of law and ethics? What about people who identify as animals or birds or fish or lizards? There are people who do so, believe it or not. There are people who really do so. 
Must we accept their subjective delusions because they say so? Or must we follow reality as it is in simple logic and empiricism? There are people who have had such delusions, very strong delusions, and have spent thousands and thousands of dollars altering their appearance to live out their delusional fantasies. There was a lady called the Catwoman. She was a, a very, very rich woman. And she had all these surgeries to make her face look like a cat. She looked absolutely ridiculous. But she really believed she was a cat. There's a guy, and you can find him on YouTube, who believes he's a lizard. He had his tongue split, and he has, his face is green, and he's had his face altered with all kinds of surgery to look like a lizard. Generally speaking, what do most people think when they see such people? You know, the lady who has her surgery to look like a cat or a man to look like a lizard or a snake. This is what they think. Yes? Do they, do they think, yes, you're really a cat? And anyone who denies that you are a cat is an evil bigot who must be silenced and punished? Is that what they think? Well, you think you're a cat. It's the same basis for the transgender movement. You think you're a cat. You really are a cat. And how dare anyone deny that you're a cat? No, this is what they really think. You look like a freak. What have you done to yourself? You need some serious counseling. That's what they think. They don't go, oh, wow, how wonderful. She thought she was a cat, now she is a cat. Why are sub subjective delusions treated so differently by progressives, the media, and Hollywood? Well, one reason is that the woman who is convinced she is a cat <clears throat> does not have the same homosexual, the whole homosexual lobby and Democratic Party backing up her delusion with propaganda, threats, and coercion. This is all a matter of coercion. It's all a matter of propaganda. It's all a matter of law. It's all a matter of political power. It is true that a woman has more in common with a man than a cat or a lizard. But we are speaking only in terms of a matter of degree. A woman is not a lizard. A woman is not a cat. And a woman is not a man. Women are no more <clears throat> a man than a human being is a cat or a lizard. A foundational principle of logical deduction is A is not and cannot be non-A. But modern secular humanistic philosophers say it can be because their concept of human autonomy, self-law, and self-actualization through uh, Trump's logic, factuality, empirical science, and created reality. Such thinking is not merely a form of stiff-necked rebellion against God, but it is a form of warfare against nature and common sense. A woman is not a man. A is not non-A. But they say A is not A. They can't even accept simple logic. They can't set, accept simple empiricism. They can't accept the findings of science. It is all subjective and it is all forced on people through coercion and propaganda. That is the transgendered movement. In addition, the transgender movement is an offshoot of the homosexual movement, really, and is a sub-movement within the sodomite lobby. The vast majority of transgendered are homosexuals who want to change their sex in order to fulfill out, to fulfill or live out their perverted, wicked, sinful fantasies. 
As Christians, we should not be surprised by this tragic reality. The Bible abounds with warnings about seeking truth or wisdom through a commitment to human autonomy, which is a form of satanic rebellion, as it says in Genesis 3, 1-5. Remember what Satan said to Eve? Well, God hasn't said that. Come on. You can determine for yourself what is right and wrong. That tree's nice. Forget what God said. You can determine for yourself what's right and wrong. Do what you want. In a fallen world where sinful depravity reigns and men are affected by the noetic effects of sin, it is crucial that we first believe in Jesus Christ and his infallible word so that we can arrive at genuine truths and ethics by thinking God's thoughts after him. As Solomon says, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, wit, of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, true knowledge. And then, of course, Proverbs 3-5-7, the fear of uh, uh, trust in the Lord, with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We're sinful creatures. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust human autonomy. We can't, we can't trust men to be fair and just. We can't. But we can't trust the word of God to be fair and just, because it is. You want to talk about equity? Equity for the liberal, for the progressive, is tyranny. It's oppression. It's complete anti-Christ, anti-freedom. But God's law gives true liberty. We live in a God-created and controlled universe. Facts are not brute facts, but derive their meaning and purpose from God. The secular humanist believes that we live in a chance universe. Everything they believe came about arbitrarily through pure contingency. Consequently, they believe that true meaning and ethics are not fixed. They are in flux because the universe is in flux, but such think thinking leads to meaningless nihilism and tyranny. Why do you think the Democrats lie the moment they open their mouths? I mean, they, they lie so much, it's unbelievable. Uh, our President Biden, the guy is a total habitual liar. So is Hillary Clinton. So is Bill Clinton. So is Obama. Because in a chance universe, it doesn't matter what truth is to them. They, they create their own truth. Once this is understood, then we can see that the debate over the, the acceptance of the transgender movement can be seen for what it really is. It is simply an extension of the secular humanist warfare and hatred of Christian civilization, which is founded on the Christian world and life view. We are first told that we need to have total toleration for perverse, wicked sexual practices. We must have a hedonistic, permissive society, for everyone should be allowed to follow his own desires. Then we are told that the perverted, immoral, thoroughly disgusting behaviors are moral and virtuous. Consequently, it is now, in their view, immoral and evil to oppose such behaviors. The original position of toleration has become a position of radical intoleration. The Orthodox Bible-believing Christian position must be silenced and destroyed, while the new sexual perversions must be actively praised and promoted even to young children. I mean, it's mind-boggling. They want to teach this stuff to four-year-olds, to three-year-olds, to five-year-olds, to six-year-olds in the public schools and public libraries. That's crazy. That's, that's insane. All this has come to pass because there can be no neutrality between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. 
The blame for the widespread acceptance of an illegalization of homosexuality, as well as the rise of the transgender movement, lies largely at the door of the Christian churches, who, due to modernism and dispensationalism, denigrated and largely abandoned the teaching of God's Old Testament moral law. To forsake God's moral law for individuals in society in order to fit in with our increasingly secular, pagan, pluralistic culture is both wicked and suicidal. To tolerate ethical subversion is itself a subversive activity and a form of surrender to the forces of Satan. The solution is an uncompromising return and emphasis on biblical law or Christian ethics. That's our only hope. And because of our pluralistic society and the way things are set up, people can't bring up the Bible, people can't appeal to the Ten Commandments. And so it's this conservative's opinion against this liberal's opinion. Now, the conservative is right, but he can't appeal to the foundations. Can he? So he talks about old-fashioned family values and all this kind of stuff, which is very weak. We are frequently told by liberals or modernists that the position of Jesus was one of love and toleration. Therefore, if we condemn homosexual or transgender behavior as sinful, immoral, and an abomination in God's sight, then we are not imitating the love and compassion of Christ. I hear this all the time. I heard this on The View. It was a clip on YouTube, I don't watch The View. <laughs> well, we agree that Jesus was the most loving and compassionate man who ever lived in all of history. His gospel message was not one of antinomianism, anti-lawism, or do-whatever-you-want-ism. He preached repentance, turning from a pagan worldview and a pagan lifestyle of sinning to the true God through his person and work to a lifestyle of discipleship or habitual, sincere, dedicated obedience to the revealed moral law of God. So Jesus didn't say, oh yeah, well, you want to do that? That's fine with me, I love you. Matthew 4.17, Matthew 9.13, 11.21, 12.41, and 32, Mark 1.15, 2.17, Luke 5.32, 10.13, 11.32, 13.3 and 5, 16.30, 24.47, Revelation 2.5, 16, 21, 22, Revelation 3, 3, and 19, etc. He told the woman caught in adultery, Go and sin no more. John 8, 11. And then also uh, see John 5, 14. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. He told his apostles and all true disciples, If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, manifest myself to him. John 14, 15, and 21. To those who use Jesus as an excuse to continue their sinful, perverted ways, Christ will say to them on the day of judgment. Matthew seven twenty three. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul agreed with the Savior when he said, this is 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 5, and 6. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, does not rejoice in iniquity. And the word iniquity means anything that is unrighteous or that transgresses God's moral law, but rejoices in the truth. That is love. That is biblical love. Fornicators and homosexuals, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. See Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Scripture teaches that the acceptance of and practice of sexual perversion, homosexuality, <clears throat> and things like the transgender perversion is a sign of total apostasy, spiritual blindness, the willful rejection of God and his judgment on man for the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. 
read Romans 1, 18 to 32. The widespread acceptance of homosexuality and transgender perversion in our society reflects a culture experiencing the burned out end product of rebellion against God. See Romans 1, 27. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of disaster. It's quite scary. When you know your Bible and you see what's going on around us, how bad things are. And then we have clarifications and concluding remarks, and we'll end here. The purpose of the study was to shed light, the clear light of God's word, written word, on the transgendered issue. One's personal opinion on such matters is useless, harmful, and dangerous if it differs from God's inspired, infallible word. Since people who hold to the biblical position are always falsely accused, a priori, of being full of hatred, before we conclude, there are some important things that must be kept in mind regarding the Bible-believing Christian view. First, the fact that the Bible identifies transgendered behavior as something very wicked, that is a scandalous, exceptionally serious sin, does not mean that the Word of God allows personal insults or threats or acts of violence to be directed against such people. Okay, this idea that, well, if you don't hold our position and praise this perverted behavior, People are going to get killed. No, that's not true at all. The Bible doesn't say that. Sins that are crimes, according to God's law, are to be handled by the civil magistrate, Romans 13, 1-7. The Bible never justifies personal insults or violence, but instead uh, simply strongly condemns such behavior, Matthew 5, 21-22 and 39-48. Christians aren't allowed to punch homosexuals in the nose or uh, kick a transgendered a man pretending to be a woman in the balls. We're not allowed to insult them. We're not allowed to mock them and, 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 and insult them and, 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 and try to destroy them. We're not allowed to do that. That's, that's anti-biblical. Personal violence or is only allowed in cases of self-defense against armed robbery or attempted burglary or attempted murder, etc., the problem with the transgender community is that they take ex expositions of biblical law or the Christian ethical position as an insult and a threat when it is not. I've said some very strong things today because I'm teaching what the Bible says. This is not my opinion. This is what God says. But that's not an insult. That's not a personal insult. I'm doing my job as a minister of the gospel to tell you what the Bible says about this issue. That's all I'm doing. And for them to be offended by that is ridiculous. Ministers have a responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God. This involves honestly and clearly identifying all sins and unbiblical behaviors. If gospel preachers or Christians could not teach about sin due to the offense it causes to apostates, pagans, and perverts, then all Christian preaching and witnessing would come to an end. We have to identify sin. And that's not very pleasant, is it? And that goes for me. That goes for you. That goes for all. We're all sinners. We've all transgressed the law of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says. All need to bow the knee to Christ, dying and bleeding for sinners at the cross and rising out of the empty tomb. We all need Christ. We're all sinners. <clears throat> when God says that something is an evil abomination that sends people to hell, we must agree. And we must speak the truth in love to our neighbor. And if you find that offensive, I'm sorry. But that's what God says. 
This is not my personal opinion. If I was a pagan, if I didn't believe in the Bible, if I didn't believe in Christ, I wouldn't care what you did. Do whatever you want. Now, the problem is, is they're not doing that privately. They're forcing it on our culture, and they're forcing it on the public schools. They're forcing it on the public libraries. Or it's all throughout the universities. They're deliberately trying to completely pervert our whole culture and society. So this is spiritual warfare, whether you want to believe it or not. And then second, the idea that is common in our narcissistic, hedonistic culture, that, that we show our love to people by agreeing with their viewpoint and behavior, even if their view is unbiblical, wrong, and immoral, and harmful, must be abandoned for the biblical concept of love. If you're driving, if, if the bridge is out, if Yellowstone National Park is flooded and the bridge has been washed out, and you really want to get home, and I say, oh yeah, everything's great, go ahead, and you drive off a cliff, is that a loving thing to lie to you because you're deluded? Because you think the bridge is there when it's not? Or is it more loving to speak the truth? Paul says that real biblical love speaks the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, and of course Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. We do not do anyone any favors by supporting and reinforcing their sinful thinking and behavior. That's not loving at all. The only hope for people who are living under the wicked transgender delusion is to learn what God has to say. What does God's word say? And then repent. That's what's important. My opinion is not important. Your opinion is not really important. What God says is the critical issue encouraging sinful delusions and wicked lifestyles so everybody feels good and pats themselves on the back doesn't do anyone any good at all. It's exceptionally harmful. People will not embrace the truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, unless they stop making excuses for their sinful behavior and acknowledge their guilt before God. When the transgenders say, well, this is what I am. I was born this way. I can't help it. I must fulfill my intrinsic nature. They are exalting subjective personal feelings or impressions over objective facts and explicit biblical truths. If you're born a man, you're a man. You're not a woman. You may think you're a woman, but you're not. And I'm not going to go along with that delusion because to do so, I would be lying to you and I would be sending you straight to hell instead of pointing you to the cross of Christ. All men are born with a sinful nature due to the fall. Theologians call that original sin. And consequently, unlawful feelings and desires are common. We all experience them. Everyone does. Only Jesus Christ was without sin. They are the outworking of the sinful flesh. Sarks. Men who are heterosexual have lusts and desires for fornication and adultery in their mind because of the sinful flesh. Yet such unlawful thoughts and desires are not self-justifications for acting upon those desires. A guy may think, oh, it'd be wonderful to have 50 beautiful women. Well, that doesn't mean you can go out and do that. It's unlawful. It's forbidden by the word of God. It's wrong. Adultery is wrong. The correct position is to be directed by God's word or Christian ethics and consequently refuse to entertain or act upon those unlawful lusts. Okay, this idea that I think something, therefore it is true, and therefore I can do it, and now it's moral, that would destroy ethics totally. 
the serial killer has an urge to do those things from a very young age, and they usually start out mutilating animals because they that's what they are or they think they are. Does that make what they do now moral? Of course not. Instead, those who obey God's moral law get married to someone of the opposite sex and fulfill their desires lawfully. See 1 Corinthians 7, 9, where Paul says, look, if you're tempted, if you're burning with lust, if you're a man, go get a woman. If you're a woman, go get a man. Get married. You have to marry a Christian, obviously. For as Paul says, the marriage bed, and he's talking about heterosexual monogamous marriage, is undefiled, Hebrews 13, 4. If we determine our ethics by subjective feelings or impressions, then truth and facts become irrelevant, for subjective desires could ju justify virtually any behavior. Sadomasochism, sexual sadism, child molestation, bestiality, adultery, unlawful divorce, you name it. That's a crazy basis for determining ethics. Yet it's that's how they justify homosexuality and lesbianism. That's how they justify that, this transgendered movement. The widespread acceptance of homosexual and transgender behaviors reveals the great decline of Christian culture and its replacement with heathen barbarism. And then third, the fact that transvestitism and the transgendered lifestyle are identified by God in Scripture as sinful and wicked offers real hope to these deluded and enslaved, and those all those deluded and enslaved by such behaviors. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the divine human mediator, died in atoning that is vicarious sacrificial death on the cross to remove the guilt and penalty of sin for his people, all those who truly believe in his person and work. Paul says, Romans 5, 1-10, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's supposed to say 9 and 10. And then Romans 10, 9 to, 9 to 11. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Admit your sin to God and confess it to him through Jesus Christ. You have to admit you're wrong. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to admit that you've committed real sinful acts and you have actual guilt. Admit it. Confess it to God. Confess with your mouth. And ask God to forgive you on account of the blood of Christ. Repent of your old way of thinking and living. Trust in Jesus Christ to wash away your sins. Then once you are uh, a Christian, demonstrate your faith in Christ and his perfect work by following him, being a disciple, and habitually obeying the moral law. The word repentance means a change of mind. And then it's a change of mind, if it's a true change of mind, repentance leads to a change of lifestyle. When the Pharisees came to John, who were wicked, John the Baptist, he said, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. I don't believe you guys. You haven't repented. You're still evil. If you believed at one time that you were a woman in a man's body, then reject that perversion. Dress masculine, grow a beard, lift weights, act manly. Dress manly. Find yourself a good, beautiful Christian woman. Obedience to God's moral law through the Spirit is true freedom. The service to one's lusts and satanic delusions is slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to the devil. 
look to Jesus Christ and be free from the satanic philosophy of secular humanism and all of its stepchildren, one of which, of course, is the transgender delusion. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for Christ. We are all rotten, filthy sinners. We thank you so much that he has saved us by his blood. He has washed away our guilt, our sin, our liability of punishment by his precious blood, his suffering unto death. And he has imputed his perfect righteousness, his perfect law-keeping to our account, reckoned to our account by imputation. We grasp that by solely by the instrument of faith. And Lord, now that we have the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bend our hearts, cleanse our minds, cause us to walk according to your statutes, your laws, your ordinances, that we would be a holy and righteous covenant-keeping people. Help us, Lord, to obey your Son, to be true disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.